There was an idea. Dormammu, I come to bargain. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. Asking Robbins always finds out. I for the faster way. Are you Tony Stank? I am Iron Man. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Assembly Required, an MCU retrospective. The show where we reassemble the MCU piece by piece, movie by movie, episode by episode. I am your host, Eduardo. And we, we gotta, like, cut it off first. We got Chris, Robbie, and Peaches here. Because we gotta talk about this WandaVision trailer that was, that was shadow-dropped on us. It just came out of nowhere. On the Emmys and yeah. blindsided all of us, and whoo! December cannot come fast enough. Yeah, I'm so excited. I, I think I said way back when they first announced all the projects that this was the Disney Plus show I was most excited about, just because I think it it sounded like it was going to be so weird, and now we're seeing it, and it is going to be so weird, and I'm here for it. Yeah, that's how I feel. I'm all about it. I was already hype, and the trailers have just really put me over the edge. I'm all about Vision in that funky-looking Halloween costume homage to his yeah, right. comic yes. book costume. <laughs> it's so great. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, wine, uh, Robbie pointed this out earlier, it's Maison de, de Mepris, uh, which means, I think, I, oh, I forget what Mepris means, my... Where your okay. wife at? My francophone wife will get mad at me. Um, <laughs> it's like House of Mundane or something like that. Like whatever the M means, it's not pleasant. Emphasis on the M. Oh, contempt. Contempt. Yeah, so it means House of Contempt, but if you just made it, you know, usually like when in a wine, House of implies it's a family name, so in English it would probably still be House of Mepri, House of M. House of M? What? With a big M on the neck. <laughs> okay, I what saw... if at the end of WandaVision, like, Hugh Jackman is there? And he's, you know... Obviously, it's not Hugh Jackman anymore, but whatever. You know, uh, what's his name? Dude that's in the... That's Charles Xavier now. What's his name? Um, Pete Holmes. <laughs> Pete Holmes. Exactly. Yeah, if Pete Holmes shows up <laughs> as Charles Xavier and <laughs> fires Wanda... <laughs> Uh, no, James McAvoy. James McAvoy. James McAvoy rolls up in there. <laughs> well, is it the rumor that um, the guy that played Quicksilver in the X Men movies has a part in this? Oh, really? Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I saw someone, uh, you know, the the famous panel from House of M, the only one that anyone knows of her saying "No more mutants." Mm -hmm. Someone said because because people always think that they're going to use the multiverse to bring in mutants, which I still don't necessarily think is how it's going to happen. I've gone on this rant before, but someone said, what if they just do this? And they photoshopped it so it said, no, more mutants. <laughs> <laughs> Evan Peters, by the way, is uh, is that Quicksilver. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, Tate from uh, American Horror Story, right? Yes. Uh -huh. It's uh, American Horror Story, not Kick-Ass. Well, he's also in Kick-Ass. Yeah, but not Kick-Ass himself. No, it's not Kick-Ass. It's not Kick-Ass Quicksilver. It's Kick-Ass Friend Quicksilver. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Kick, yeah, kick, oh, I forgot they, oh, I forgot they were in it. Because... Yeah, both Kick-Ass and his friend were both Quicksilver in different 
X-Men or different Marvel properties. Oh, you see, because I only ever think about when I think about weird Quicksilver casting, it's how they played husband and wife in Godzilla uh-huh. and then brother and sister in uh, in Age of Ultron. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yep. No, Aaron Aaron Taylor Johnson is who plays yes. Quicksilver in the MCU and Kick-Ass in Kick-Ass. <laughs> Yo, I don't know if we talked about this on that episode, but what an incredible transformation that dude had from Kick-Ass to playing Quicksilver. He looks like a oh, different yeah. person. Mm-hmm. We should do a Kick-Ass huge. episode. Why don't we do a Kick-Ass episode? <laughs> I love that movie. We'll put it on the list. Okay, the cool. List. We're going to have a WandaVision episode here Oh, soon. my goodness. A couple oh months now. Goodness. And yeah. So I grew up on the on um, Nick at Night, like the old Nick at Night when it wasn't, you know, sitcoms that we all remember as just having gone off the air two years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And so all the references, the, 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 the clear sitcom references, just get me really excited. I want to see how exactly that's folded in. Um, I was especially excited, and I, I know I told everyone here off the air, so they've already made their surprise faces, but... Um, I was going through the pictures and realized that one of them, I'm almost 100% positive, is The Secret World of Alex Mack, which is a real, real deep cut. Um, not even a sitcom. It was a, more of a drama, but like I uh, yeah. loved that show when I was a kid. Uh, so something referencing The Secret World of Alex Mack is really cool to me. She's dressed like Alex Mack. She's sitting in a living room that is almost exactly like the Mack household, so I don't think it's a coincidence. If she turns into a puddle of metallic goo, we'll know. Ooh, yeah. Um, Good point. So I'm pretty excited, and it just, it seems so trippy yeah. and weird, and just, I, I'm very, very much here You've for it. You've got the yeah, Brady Bunch living room. Rooms. You've got the Family Ties kitchen. Right. Let's get into the weeds of more, like, <clears throat> Nickelodeon teen dramas. Like, let's have, like, Vision be an Animorph. And, <laughs> you know, like... Let's get really into this. We have Ariana Grande show up at one point. It's going to be great. Photon explains it all. I'm in. What was Ariana Grande in? Starbucks. Ariana Grande? She's in Victorious. I don't even know what that is. See, it's clever because her name is Tori, not Ariana Grande. Someone else is Tori, right? Okay. Yes. It's one of those Dan Schneider her name shows is Vic- that I believe her name is Victoria. Right. Yeah. Well, and it was um, Victoria Justice was like the star. Oh, yeah. We are like way off track. But Victoria Justice was the star of this show. And everybody thought she was the one that was going to go places. But Ariana Grande, who played like a very secondary character in that show, is the one that ended up blowing up. Interesting. Well, is that what happened with Zendaya? I did not know any of this. Wasn't she like the side character on her show? Bella Thorne's out there doing some stuff. <laughs> um, which 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 show was the one that had the girl from School of Rock? Do you know what I'm talking about? Was that Victorious? You talking about Miranda? You talking about iCarly? Oh, is that what that? You okay. do not yeah. besmirch iCarly yeah, like that. iCarly. I'm sorry. <laughs> I loved iCarly because iCarly was like almost even a spinoff of Drake and Josh. Okay, see, I think I. Yeah. How how old are you? If you don't mind saying. I am 29 years old. Okay. 29 years young. All right. So we're only a couple <laughs> years apart, say. but that's that's like ages in Nickelodeon years. Well, right. Yeah. You know? so Bailey like, and I were in the car the other day, and she was trying to describe all of these Disney Channel original movies to me, and I had never heard of any of them. And mm-hmm. I was like, 
how does that how is that even possible that I've literally just never heard of these movies? And it's because at some point when you reach that age, you just stop watching. Mm-hmm. You don't even yes. think about the channel anymore. And then all of these other properties that are on there, they don't mean a thing to you. Nope. Mm-hmm. See, because I was That's like original I cast all that. I was Keenan and Kel. Um, mm-hmm. I remember Clarissa explains it who, all. Who is original cast all that? Danny Tamborelli, Lori Beth. No, Danny my Tamborelli God. No, Danny was not original. No, because Danny Tamborelli was, was on the Adventures Pete of Pete and Pete at that point. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. No, they just don't, don't murder me. at you. Um, Lori I, Beth Denberg, uh, uh, Keenan and Kel. Keenan and Kel, obviously. Josh, Josh, is it Seaver? Server? I don't remember. So I remember those. I mostly just remember Keenan Kel and Lori Beth Denberg. Yeah. I mean, they were fine. Josh Server, yeah. Did Amanda uh, Bynes come later? Amanda Bynes came yes. later. Yes, she did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, there were good cast members that joined later. I mean, just like, mm-hmm. I mean, there there are SNL legends who started later, like Keenan. That's you know still yeah. still wild right. to me. Now he's the longest you know, tenured SNL cast member ever, and he's still all wait. That. Is he really? I think so. Yeah, and oh, it, wow. or if he's not, he's like a year away from it. But I, but I'm pretty sure he is. He's when I was a kid, I thought everyone on all that was going to grow up to be on SNL. Uh-huh. Um, I guess I was right about one of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I can actually still remember, like I can see it in my mind's eye, watching Snick the first night of Snick when it made its debut. Yeah, the orange couch. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It was couch. Roundhouse, wow. Clarissa Explains It All, uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark, and oh, Ren and yeah. Stimpy. I loved Are You Afraid of the Dark, even though it scared the shit out of me. I don't know why I liked it. They brought it back recently. They revived it. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's any good. I heard the revival of Are You Afraid of the Dark was kind of like the revival of The Twilight Zone. Oh, I didn't hear much about the revival of The Twilight Zone, so I guess that explains that. (laughs) Man. (laughs) Yeah, this this Are You Afraid of the Dark reboot, I, I, I forget why I looked it up the other day, but... um the apparently it has like an overarching story it was like a four-part story no the episodic the episodic nature of are you afraid of the dark was part of the appeal of yeah and then then when there would be a connection the connections were made weirder by the fact that otherwise the story was not connected in any way whatsoever like you had the one person that always told stories with mr sardo and uh and the other one with um who was the other recurring character? Because Mr. I, Sardo is the only one I can think of. Sardo, no Mr. Sorry, <laughs> no Mr. Action Wait, on was the it note. the taxi driver dude? Oh, he was. Uh, I don't know, but I remember one episode where the two Midnight Society people told a joint story that used both of their characters. It was like the okay. big crossover, and it, that was the Avengers of Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> I don't remember any of the characters in there at all. It's going to be crazy because I know this, but what is your favorite episode of Goosebumps, and why is it One Day at Horrorland? You know, Uh, I didn't watch Goosebumps. Goosebumps I read Goosebumps. I I read, I read like the entire Mm -hmm. series, but I didn't watch the show very much. That just hurt me. I've only seen. It's the same thing you were talking about. We're just a few years. There was two things that really struck out to me of Goosebumps, and it was one day at Horrorland, and there's another one with a superhero, and it was like this kid that gets trapped in like a supervillain. Oh yeah, Attack of the Mutant. Is that what it is? Oh yeah, something like that, or Day of the Mutant. Yeah, yeah. Attack of the Mutant. Yeah. I've actually seen that episode and read the book. Okay, Uh, it's a um, weird episode. Doctor Vink. Doctor Vink. Okay. 
I watched The Haunted Mask. I had that one on VHS. Uh-huh. And I watched... Um, I watched Stay Out of the Basement. Mm-hmm. That was the first one I read. And I watched one more uh, other than the the carnival one that Eduardo just mentioned. I I don't, these are all books that I read. I remember the How to Kill a Monster episode. That's the one that I remember the most. Mm. I remember ads for the How to Kill a Monster episode. I will always think of the way they designed the monster for the show, but it's only based on the ads. Yeah. Like, welcome yeah, I... to Dead House or something. Yeah, Welcome to Dead House. Did you guys not watch the ones with the dummy? Oh, Night of the Living no. Dummy? Night of the Living no, Dummy. No, but I read yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I read them, but I didn't watch it. Oh, yeah, I read the whole there. Bride of the Living Dummy. Uh... Yeah, there was there was a point in my life that I had read every Goosebumps book. Man, like, I kind of want to go yeah. back and meme watch all of the original Ghostbusters, or Goosebumps episodes. I'm not going to read all the books, but I'll meme watch the show. Robbie, had you grown out of it by the time they switched over to Goosebumps 2000? Yes. The books? Okay. It's probably so, so bad. So you never read uh, Invasion of the Body Squeezers, part one and part two. It was the first time no. you ever did a two-part book, like one month and then ne- the next month, and the covers went together. I did read, uh, I actually had the autobiographies of both R.L. Stein and Tim Jacobus, who was the uh, the cover artist for the books. Uh, those those were that's those really were interesting. Good. Yeah, I, I was big also, into Goosebumps back in the day. Also, did not expect this episode to derail into the Nickelodeon talk. Thanks, but also I, I think the people that listen to this podcast don't care. Yeah, they're probably okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fifteen ones seconds, that care... fifteen seconds, fifteen seconds. They're still talking about Goosebumps. What's going <laughs> on? You want to know this Daredevil episode three and four is? What is your favorite Goosebumps book and movie or and show? My favorite. Okay. My favorite Goosebumps book. I will answer this question. It was the first one I ever read. It was a shocker on shock street because it was the first Goosebumps book I read. And the final chapter ending twist blew my mind at the time. Cause the whole thing, it was, it's about these two kids and their dad works at this studio tour theme park kind of thing. Um, and the whole thing is told first person by the perspective of the girl. Um, and then, like, at the end, she's call- she's talking to her dad, and he's looking very concerned when she's calling him, or when she's calling him dad. And then the last chapter is in third person, and it's describing how they're animatronics that he built, and they were malfunctioned, and think that it's all real, and think that he's what? their father. It's Westworld. Yeah. yeah, that is Westworld. What but it was more? it was the fact that they that they switched narration styles from first person. To third I do person. remember that. I was one. like, "Whoa, that's crazy." I think my favorite was "Stay Out of the Basement." As cliche an answer that is, I just thought that one was well written. Oh yeah, the one I remember the most is the Cuckoo Clock of Doom. Mm. I almost mm. said Cuckoo Clock of Doom. <laughs> I almost said Cuckoo Clock of Doom. I think about that one on a regular basis for some yeah. reason. Oh, best Eduardo. cover. Best cover. Oh yeah, Eduardo, your best cover was Cuckoo Clock. I already said yeah. it was One Day at Horrorland. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. okay, okay. Because that was like the theme park one. It was like uh-huh. a whole like haunted theme park thing. But the one oh, I got one. one more. That's... I'm sorry. Go, go on, go on, go on, go on. But I want no, one I was more thing. Say the one that sticks to me is more is probably the um, the mutant one. Okay, mm-hmm. one more thing, and then we can talk about the thing we came here for. Well, Who I'm remembers the choose your own? The, the Choose Your Own Adventure Goosebumps books. Oh, give yourself Goosebumps. The, had, they were so good. The one about the, uh, it was about the carnival. Uh-huh. 
Oh, they're so good. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was a recent Goosebumps series of books. They like they revived it, and they were all tied together by Horrorland. Oh. And it was like it was like be, there would be like a story that tied in with one of the old Goosebumps books. So, like there was an Night of Living Dummy one. There was a Deep Trouble one. I want to say you know and a couple others. And so there'd be that book, but in the end there'd be like two chapters of how the kids in that story end up called to Horrorland, and then like the last book tied it all together. I didn't read it because you know I was far too old for it by that point. But it was interesting that uh, that it was interesting to me that they did that, and it, that it was clearly trying to cash in on nostalgia, um, but still aimed at you know fourth graders who don't have nostalgia for goosebumps i hope rl stein listens to this podcast i enjoy (laughs) you saying you were far too old for something when last night our evenings revolved around talking about the new ducktales episode hey ducktales is (laughs) fantastic and i i don't need to defend myself (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, did you know rl stein was the head writer for eureka's castle on nick jr no. Yeah. How did I not know that? Well, that if you read like his exactly autobiography. Because <laughs> <laughs> he used to write joke books under the name Jovial Bob Stein. <laughs> hmm. yeah. huh. All right. That's it's time to put us back on track. We have, gone, <laughs> okay. we have gone too far. This is. <laughs> we've gone too far. It's <laughs> been half an hour and we have. <laughs> Surprise, this is an episode about. Welcome to Camp Nightmare, the surprise of the Goosebumps series. Today Ooh. we discuss the remake of Goosebumps with Jack Black. <laughs> yeah. uh, today we're actually going to be discussing episodes three and four of Daredevil. Episode Ghost three. Next Door. Sorry, that's uh, I'm done. Last one. <laughs> episode three, Rabbit in a Snowstorm, written by Marco Ramirez and directed by Adam Kane, and episode four, In the Blood, written by Joe Pekoski. And directed by Ken Garotti. That's gonna be the best. It's gonna. It's the best I'm gonna get. Uh, you know, it's not. It's not gonna get any better than that, folks. They're gonna send some Angelowski and Karate. <laughs> it sounds like the two brothers, the two Russian brothers over here. <laughs> Vladimir and the other one. Yeah, that Anatoly. Anatoly. Molot. Yeah, I don't know. Anatoly. Anatoly. So be nice. Anatoly can't hear you saying that about his name. You can in episode three. <laughs> so episode three starts with a lone man walks into a bowling alley and approaches what appears to be a mobster with two bodyguards. The man is able to subdue the bodyguards by hand and pulls a gun on the mobster. The assailant is able to win a bloody fight with the mobster, crushing his head with a bowling ball, then surrendering to the police. The juxtaposition in that scene of the basically family guy cutaway joke where he's getting the gun from Turk Barrett, saying, oh, it'll never jam, and then it immediately jamming. <laughs> and then it immediately being followed by him just demolishing this guy's skull. Yeah. There was a lot of tonal whiplash in that first scene. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the priest who Matt Murdock confessed to in the first episode finds Murdock outside his parish. He promises confession is safe, but offers a conversation with Matt over a latte, since he seems to have a lot on his mind, Murdoch declines. Reporter Ben Urich meets with an old retired mobster on the pier. The mobster has clearly served as Urich's informant over the years and says he is retiring to Florida 
as New York crime has gotten more brutal than ever. Yurik presses him over the new head of crime, is saying... Yurik presses him over the new head of crime, is saying he can't get information because police records are being altered. The old man advises him to stop his investigation. At the law office of Nelson and Murdoch, Foggy Nelson, Matt Murdoch, and Karen Page start their day off. Karen and Foggy notice Matt's injuries from his fight with the Russians and are concerned, but Murdoch says it was an accident at home. James Wesley arrives and offers to take Nelson and Murdoch on retainer. Cool. Seems awkward. Yeah, where he's like... uh, Yeah, he's Mm -hmm. so... I mean, he does it really... Like, good for that actor, because he plays it really well. Yes, he does. But man, you just want to punch his face every time he's on screen. Uh Yeah. Also, I felt like this was a nice early oh shit moment. Like, I didn't expect who we clearly know is one of the villains to just so early just walk into the good guy's hideout, basically. Yeah. I mean, they do a good job right away of um, not being targets because he immediately Mm -hmm. is telling Kingpin, like, we have nothing to worry about. These guys are our lawyers. Like, they're fine. So that's that's good, but he's still a slime ball. Like he's just, I don't know. I do oh, want to yeah. punch him every time he's on screen. Oh yeah, when he kind of crosses that line about Karen, mm-hmm. I was like, so Oof. does everyone that you get off of murder charges come to work for you, or just the pretty ones? So hold like, on, oh, that's gross. Snapshot this conversation, yeah. like this exact moment. I need you to like think about this conversation, put it in your brain, remember this. Because I just want to remember the things you're saying for several episodes in the future. Okay. That's all. Okay. I don't remember what you're talking about, so sweet. And it's killing me that you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Foggy is excited, but Matt has reservations. Wesley offers them a case to take in order to ease their minds. Murdoch follows Wesley through the street, focusing on the sound of his watch until Wesley climbs into his employer's SUV. Foggy meets with a client who turns out to be the man from the bowling alley fight, John Healy. As Fox, Foggy talks to Healy, the man's lack of remorse is clear, and Foggy Foxy. starts to <laughs> Foxy, starts to back out before Matt arrives and says they'll represent him. As Nelson and Murdoch question Healy, their clients insist on going to trial, while Nelson remains concerned. In the offices of the New York Bulletin, Ben Urich tries to convince his editor, uh, Mitchell Ellison, on his of his story. Urich, uh, oh my god, <laughs> I'm like halfway through, and I hate this episode. Um, <laughs> yeah, we uh, haven't really had any time to interrupt you, huh? It's because nothing happens in this goddamn episode. There's nothing yeah. you guys can interrupt me about because nothing happens. I had to force that last thing that I said because I was like, we haven't interrupted Eduardo in a while. There is one point in this episode. Okay, let's see here. No, technically two, but one of them happens at the end of the episode, and I don't even know if it technically counts. And I only only shoved it in here so that we could get something else in this episode. (laughs) The only real point in this episode is for me to talk about how much I hated this episode. You know what? I would have I would have been interested in hearing Bailey's perspective on this episode because there's actually oh. some some like law happening. It's not just like we're mm-hmm. following two people that are lawyers. It's they go to court and they 
talk to the stand and all that stuff. And it'd be cool to like hear her perspective on how realistic all that is. So I'm glad you said that because she asked, she texted me a couple hours ago and said, on this episode, will you please bring up how awful a defense attorney Matt Murdock is? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, as we were watching it, she he kept killed like, a man. <laughs> he killed a man. As we were watching it, she kept being like, that's not how that works. Well, that's not how that works. And what made her really angry and so, and I promised her, yes, I would bring this up. But then as we were whipping through this episode, I realized, I don't, I'm not going to interrupt Eduardo and bring this up. So Peaches did it for you. There you go, Peaches. Way to throw Bailey a bone. But I want, um, I, I was, I, I was watching it and I was legitimately like, huh, I wonder what Bailey's perspective on this so is. <laughs> what she was particularly angry about though, was not his, how he carried thing in, um, in the court, but that. He will only defend people who he thinks either he has something to gain or, more importantly, can actually tell that they're not guilty. And that's not your rights are, you know, a defense to the full extent of the law. Not, well, I know you're not guilty, so I'll take you on. Yes, I know they're a private practice. but uh, And she asked me to text a friend of mine um, who occasionally listens to this show. Um, so, Steph, if you're listening, here you go. Uh, she asked me to text a friend of mine who is also a defense attorney. I mean, it has been for several years to ask her, how do you feel about Matt Murdock only taking on uh, clients who he knows are not guilty? And my friend's response was, it goes against every fiber of my being and everything a defense attorney should hold sacred. So <laughs> to be to be fair, I mean, they've only taken two people in the three episode course of yeah. the show and they did take him on even though he was guilty matt just beat the shit out of him. yeah definitely <laughs> and i think the two of them were also definitely talking about like the larger idea of matt murdoch not just what they've seen in the show but yeah yeah um, yeah so uh bailey's take was not great and she asked me to bring that up so here we go i did um, well, i think it's not that her take isn't great she doesn't think very highly of matt murdoch the attorney i feel like there aren't a lot of like when lawyers are portrayed on TV mm -hmm. or in media in general, either they are the, you know, it's like law and order where it's like, we got to catch the bad guy mm -hmm. or they're skeevy, gross, you know, Saul Goodman. Chasers. You know, yeah, Saul Goodman or, or they're a defense attorney who's clearly getting bad people off the hook. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I think that colors how people, think of lawyers mm -hmm. um and you know I, I and i think that the idea that everyone is entitled to a fair defense is an important one uh, and it's one when you're going to portray unfortunately because of the the views of of, of lawyers and media and, and all of that and i don't know if it's law and order or if it goes back further was perry mason was he a defense attorney no, I think he was a prosecutor. Because I got to up because yeah, I, I know Perry, his whole thing. Yeah, Perry Mason was about finding the bad guy and getting him to confess, and it was always nonsense how he did it. Yeah, yeah. He's I mean, he's an attorney. He, he, he's a defense attorney. Oh, is he really? Doesn't come off like it. <laughs> because because he would defend people, and he'd get the real criminal to confess yes. on the stand. Yes. So 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 it's Phoenix right? You know, same thing. Um, <laughs> but he. That sounds like legally blonde to me. Well, and it sounds oh, like yeah, to me what exactly. it sounds like is a few good men, which is 
a great film, but their entire defense strategy in that film is let's get this guy who we think is actually guilty and we'll just like get him to just confess, which is what happens. And it's really compelling, but the strategy is nonsense. They're not good lawyers. (laughs) And I think it's because people don't want to think about people who are probably guilty or who probably did it being found not guilty. Right. Uh, So the only way you can portray a defense attorney in a positive light, even though this is unfair to defense attorneys, Mm -hmm. uh, is by having them, you know, have a, have a conscience that, you know, I will only defend the innocent or I will, I will get to the bottom. I will find the real truth and, and get it on the stand. And yeah, you know, I think it would be interesting and I'm sure there have been shows like this, but you know, let, let's see a defense attorney who, defends criminals but isn't like a right bad person also yeah um but yeah when you but because of the cultural idea of good Mm -hmm. and evil and right and wrong and all that Mm -hmm. uh you've got to have your your vigilante defense attorney be like yes my client killed this man but you can't prove that it wasn't his self-defense so he must walk free so don't worry i'll beat him (laughs) up later (laughs) yeah um there's a hurt his feelings till he dies there's a youtube channel called legal legal and it's a lawyer a new york lawyer who watches um shows and movies and stuff to like grade their accuracy and their abilities lawyers and stuff um and he was very harsh on matt murdoch though relatively positive on the portrayal of legal proceedings in daredevil hmm. he still had lots to criticize because everyone is bad at how court actually works. But he did say yeah. Daredevil is better than you usually see, but also was yeah. very, very critical of how just nonsense Matt Murdock is. <laughs> you know, what I thought was interesting about this episode was the they drew a parallel between attorney-client privilege and the seal of confession. I, and, and, you know... Theology Hour with Chris again, but I, you know, I, I just thought that was an interesting parallel that I personally had never considered before. Uh, but also, when you know, reintroducing the priest at the beginning and him mentioning the seal of confession, and then when he's talking about turning client privilege, the guy's like, "Yeah, like church," and I, I, I'm wondering what's going through Matt's head there because I feel like, well, I know what's going through his head. He's feeling guilty. <laughs> Um, <laughs> nine, nine times out of ten that's what's going through his head is I am a bad person uh, I am doing things wrong um, but you know but I but I thought just that there's an interesting parallel uh, when you know these two pillars of Matt Murdock's personality and life uh, kind of coming together like that I, I, I found that to be an interesting interesting choice to, to make that kind of explicit there I guess we have to get back into the episode. Uh, <laughs> oh, hey, we didn't mention in Ben's <laughs> office uh, the newspapers that he has uh, in his office of the articles that he wrote about Hulk um, smashing Harlem and uh, and the Battle of New York. But now we have for not the Daily hey, Eduardo, Eagle. Yes, Eduardo, <laughs> if you don't want to talk about episode three, what's your second favorite Goosebumps book? <laughs> <laughs> No, we have to talk about it. We told the people we would, so we will. 
Uh, Karen is offered a settlement by an attorney representing the now dissolved Union Allied Construction in exchange for keeping her mouth shut. Yurik visits his wife in the hospital where he has to work with the staff to help him afford to keep her as she battles illness, a mysterious illness. In trial, Nelson and Murdoch put forth the case that the prosecution cannot prove Healy was not justified in his actions. As Foggy argues, Murdoch recognizes Wesley's watch, as well as the anxious heartbeat of a juror. When the juror leaves at the end of the day, a thug reminds her it will all be over soon after her verdict. What she leaves, a masked Matt Murdoch appears and beats him senseless. He admits the juror is blackmailed by a compromising tape from when she was a teenager. Murdoch tells him to destroy the tape and have the juror attempt to excuse herself. Murdoch asks the man who he works for, and the man says he doesn't know. The next day, the compromised juror is excused, and Murdoch makes his case that his client may be a bad man, but that's irrelevant to the facts of the case. What an awful defense strategy. That's just, that's just how you convince the jury. I will say, though... Juries are renowned it... for being emotionless and only looking at the logic. <laughs> completely objective you know, I would say beating them over the head that yeah you probably hate this guy but look at the law look at the law you can't you know in some ways maybe that's not so bad of a defense but yeah but I think said, it's like yeah. defense 101 that you do not admit that your client did the thing that you are defending them yeah right they did <laughs> not do that's like, why they dress under- them up when they go to court so they look nice like the the personalities yeah. well, to be fair that he never like the guy who never said I didn't murder him he said he murdered in self-defense well you're right you're absolutely right I don't think his argument was bad I think his argument is a bad way to convince a human being it's the kind of argument that I think you and I would like because we're kind of like robots, but yeah. <laughs> but I don't think that's everyone. Right. And this is why they're looking forward to WandaVision <laughs> so they can have some on-screen representation. Well, yeah. I too can phase through walls. I don't know if you guys knew that. Uh, the next day, the compromised juror is excused, and Murdoch makes his case that his client may be a bad man, but that's irrelevant to the facts of the case. Stupid. Wesley and Leland <laughs> Housley meet, with Housley demanding to meet with Wesley's employer and being told no. Uh, Wesley explains they do not want to have Healy killed the way they have previous goons because they do not want a trail of bodies. <laughs> Leland says he wants to move on the holdings of the mobster who was killed by Healy until the attention is off the trail. Karen Page finds the widow of Daniel Fisher. After terse words, Page tries to get the widow to join her in exposing Union Allied construction, but finds out Mrs. Fisher already signed the same silencing agreement Karen was offered. Page, having yet not having not yet agreed, goes to Yurik and tells him there is more to the story. Now, Robbie, um, talk about the one good thing from this episode. I uh, I think I agree with that. Like, so I and we'll get to this. I don't hate this episode the way you clearly do, but I do actually agree that this is the redeeming, the main redeeming aspect of this episode. I so I don't know that I've ever brought this up on the podcast. So for those that don't know, um, I went to school for journalism. Um, I wanted to write for a newspaper. I wanted to be either a sports writer or an investigative reporter. Um, I ended up working for uh, the school paper uh, and, and 
at our school, we, we are at Washington State University is a major communication school. Uh, so we had the Edward R. Murrow College of Communications. Uh, and so, and our newspaper is actually like the local newspaper for the town. Um, so when I say I was writing for the school paper, it was more than, you know, a little fivefold that would go out every week. But uh, anyway, I, I was a beat writer for several of the sports teams. Uh, but what I really liked doing was hanging out and, and listening to, you know, my friends who would be listening to police scanners and finding stories and breaking them open. And that stuff was really fascinating to me. That's what I wanted to do, like, with my life. And unfortunately, I went to school for journalism right about the same moment that the newspaper industry crashed into the toilet. Uh, so real bad timing on my part. It's never been something I've been able to turn into a job, but it's always been something that I'm still very enamored with and like seeing. And the fact that they brought that into the show, it's, it's really exciting. And, and, you know, I'm not going to spoil things for the sound Lord, but it's a core tenant of this series is the, the journalism aspect of it. And you get to see two aspects or two, you know, the, the, the beginning and end of that career. You see Ben Yurick, who at this point is a grizzled veteran who, you know, likes what he's doing, but is also very jaded about the world. Um, has a lot on his plate, and uh, we see that he's done a lot over the years. We see his his talent and his instincts. We see that he's not able to do what he loves anymore because his industry is dying, and now he's got to sell papers. And they talk about how the bloggers are killing them and making more than they are. And from the, I think they literally used the mother's basement line in this. Um, and and uh, what also, I'm just excited to see Ben Yurick because Ben Yurick is a is an important character in Marvel Comics. Uh, he does not get to work for the Daily Bugle in this because uh, Sony has the Daily Bugle, so instead he's, what, the Daily mm -hmm. Bulletin? Um, Something like that. Using the same Bulletin. typeface and the same front page style as the Daily Bugle, but it's not the Daily Bugle. Uh, but, you know, it's cool seeing Ben Yurick in this. And then you see Karen Page, who's just realizing that she likes this and just realizing that she has skill for this. And watching Karen um, start to do this investigative thing and then start to grow... I just really, really like, and it's done great in this episode as the two of them interact. I really love Karen thinking she's super clever showing up to the, the auction <laughs> and watching them. And then Yurik showing up and calling her an idiot. Um, it, it's just, I really like it. And so it's definitely, there's a lot that I like about this show and I would like it even without this, this hard boiled detective or hard boiled uh, journalist angle, but it's, um, it adds a lot of appeal to the show and it's part of why I think it's such a masterpiece is it's, it's very well done. And it also just really has these things that speak to me specifically. I, I love the, the newspaper aspect of the show. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. Cause I, it's such a great trope. The uh, investigative mm -hmm. journalist who ends up uncovering the massive conspiracy <laughs> and, or gets in over their head as a result I know it's the kind of thing that, I mean, I guess it has happened in real life. All the president's men, we've, mm -hmm. you know, only didn't live through that. I'm too young for that, but <laughs> saw the movie. Good movie. Um, you know, so, so some of that does happen, but you'll, it's, it's the kind of idealistic thing that I think a lot of journalists dream about being able to do like, Oh, this is the big story. I'm going to track down these leads. Every journalist secretly wants to be a detective, uh, and a, and a detective in the Encyclopedia Brown Sherlock Holmes sense, not not the mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, Law and Order kind. Ta -ta. <laughs> My Encyclopedia Brown was the first detective I thought of, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, me badly screaming the Law and Order sound into the mic was the first thing I thought of. So, <laughs> so, I mean, uh, so Eduardo, this is actually something you like about this episode. No, no, I just meant this is the one good thing somebody had to say oh. about the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. I mean, like, it's, like, fine, I guess, but, like... <laughs> back Compared the to Healy the first two, it's hard to get excited about it. Like, it's just really slow going, and, like, it moves the plot forward a little, but... I don't have a follow-up. There's nothing else to say. <laughs> yeah. Back at the Healy trial, Murdoch detects the anxious heartbeat of yet another juror and realizes the jury is hung. With Healy uh, condescendingly applauding Murdoch's speech, Matt realizes the DA will not retry the case, and Healy will go free. That night, Healy is attacked in an alley by a masked Murdoch. After a lengthy battle, Murdoch is able to beat the name of Healy's employer out of him, Wilson Fisk. Healy is clearly panicked at exposing Fisk and says anyone he's ever cared about is now in danger, calling Murdoch a coward for not killing him. Healy then slams his own face on a sharpened fence post and dies, startling Murdoch. Three for three for eye pokes. <laughs> yeah, we can stop. We can stop poking our eyes in this show. Yeah, I'm not a fan. Whenever. And whenever's good for you, it's good for me. Also, look, it's the, the episode just. It felt like nothing happened in the episode. And it felt like every time I looked at the screen, it was two people in a room talking to each other, or we were in a courtroom. And it was like that the entire episode. And that's okay if that's like, and it's not like I'm like an action fiend that I need action all the time. That's not it. But there is a way to disperse these moments to give points of brevity like your dialogue should be points of brevity in a show like this it should be points of relief where you're you know those they're the lows to accompany the highs the problem with this episode is that you have a high at the beginning a high at the end and everything in the middle almost is a low and it makes it very difficult to watch not that um it's not necessarily because like some shows it can take that and can add in suspense into what's happening with the dialogue but a lot of this was just like exposition and like moving the plot forward little by little and very small things. There was no, I never felt tense or drama that truly with the dialogue that was happening here in the middle of this episode, maybe a little bit with the awful court defense, but for the most part, it just felt like, they're having a conversation. I'm just waiting for this conversation to finish because nothing's really happening with this conversation. Like I don't need to watch Wesley give an update to Kingpin for the 16th time and him being like, we'll get it done. And like, it just <laughs> like, it's like the same thing sort of rehashed almost. And I think I'm so down on this episode because specifically the episode before and the episode we're going to talk about here in a moment, were both really strong to me. And this one feels lesser by comparison. I'm not yep. going to be that harsh, but I also agree. Like, I do think this is a, a weaker episode, maybe searching my memory, maybe even the weakest episode of the season. Um, and definitely does not 
is not as exciting as the other ones. I don't hate it because I do actually like the dialogue. And like I said, I really like the the Karen Page becoming a journalist thing. Um, that said, I do also agree, especially compared to where we're about to go in the next episode and beyond. I do agree with that. I do think it doesn't stand up to what comes after. I just, I did like it. I just, it wouldn't, this wouldn't have hooked me on the show if this is where you introduced me. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the episode just fine, but I, I definitely get where you're coming from on this. And and I think there are a couple things that maybe could have been done differently to make it a stronger episode as a whole. And either, I think it's a it's a good A story, it's a good B story. Uh, I thought that the uh, um, when Wesley shows up at the office, I thought that was a really tense you know, good dialogue scene. I enjoyed pretty much everything with, with Ben. I I liked him. I wanted to, I I was excited to meet this character and find out more about him. And, and, and I thought the story with him and Karen was a good story. Either they needed to pair this a story with a different B story and that B story with a different a story uh, that maybe would have contrasted them a little bit better because really I, I and maybe I'm missing something, but I didn't feel like there was a thread that connected those two stories. It was more we have these two plot lines that are going to intersect throughout the se- the season, so we're going to introduce them here. When and this is kind of what I was getting at last episode, saying that you still have to think about each episode as an episode, and if there had been some way to sort of thematically link these stories if they're not going to be linked up together in a plot sense then they need to be linked together in a thematic way that that it makes sense that these are the two stories they're choosing to tell in this particular hour of the show um and i think the other thing they could have done was that the the court case itself didn't really matter you didn't care how it was going to end up or not really uh, I, I didn't feel any tension or stakes with that. Uh, whether they needed to make it more of a threat that if they lost this case, you know, bad things would happen to them or, or whatever it was. I, I felt like it needed just one more element to actually lend some tension to the courtroom scenes because it was a courtroom drama without much courtroom mm-hmm. drama. Yep. Yeah, you kind of didn't care what happened. I didn't really think about it that far because if like you know the guy is a criminal mm-hmm. so if he gets away with it like he did you know that matt's just gonna beat him up and if he doesn't if he doesn't get away with it then cool he gets put away like <laughs> so there was not really any fear for what what could happen in that case i didn't like it <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like this episode. Uh, I think it is just not, it's just not, it doesn't do what I want the Marvel shows to do. And it doesn't do what I think they do well, almost at all. Um, And so like, if you chop off the beginning and the end of this episode, what you're left with, in my opinion, is just not, it's not what I'm here for. And I'm not only here for, fighting and you know the action and all that stuff that's not what i'm saying i am here for that to be part of somebody's story and to be sort of better interwoven 
into the narrative. Whereas here it's like, it's almost like two separate things. Like, and maybe that's like by design that like Matt's life is separate and he keeps it that way. But I don't think that's necessarily good storytelling because it doesn't, there's no contrast between the two sides of Matt Murdock being on display here at all. And once again, we're going to talk about the next episode, but the next episode does a really great job of showing the contrast between Matt's regular life and his secret, you know, almost Batman life. But we move on. In a display of art, the curator approaches a large man staring at a large canvas of white paint. She tells the man it's a white rabbit in a snowstorm, and he tells her he's interested in it. The curator says the important part of art is how it makes you feel, and he says, it makes me feel alone, and continues to stare. Relatable. Uh, (laughs) Chris, this is your first shot of Kingpin, episode three of Daredevil. What are your thoughts? What are you thinking? I think Kingpin is, I think he's going to be an unusual and uh, kind of a compelling villain. I'm excited to see where it goes. I think Vincent D'Onofrio, he gives interesting performances. Um, you know, he's the kind of actor that will come in and, and, ma- and make a choice, like when, uh, and how he portrays the character. You know, and, and what I thought interesting, and, and especially more in the, in the next episode we're going to talk about, uh, which is a very Kingpin centric episode he kind of almost comes across as awkward uh and 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 you get that even in that scene where because it makes me feel lonely and and he seems nervous and i don't know what's going on there and and maybe maybe there's more to it the way ravi's making faces i'm not making faces okay <laughs> um I, you almost get a sense that he's a bit off, but it could just be that he's socially awkward, which is a weird thing to, you know, someone who is a kingpin would be socially awkward that he can, has people throughout the city afraid to even say his name, you know, that there's something more to it than that. Uh, and then when he just freaking loses it at the end of that fourth episode uh, in oh god that that <laughs> super violent scene at the end um we we actually do see that he is a dangerous dangerous man uh and it, and, it, and it kind of recolors everything that we've seen of him so far is he you know because he gets so bad when his when his date is interrupted uh by by the russian coming in is he trying to hide his criminal life be- just because he doesn't want her to know about this? Is he actually ashamed of the fact that he's gotten uh, become a criminal? Is he just unstable? Uh, but he also has an intelligent and calculating side because he's he has that comment at the end about he's planning to start a war now uh, throughout Hell's Kitchen. Uh, so I, I just you know I it looks like he's going to be very interesting foil to to Daredevil, and I'm I'm excited to see. Uh, as their stories come closer to intersecting, I, I, I'm excited to see that. I'm just very, very, very excited for you to see that. Okay, because <laughs> everything you sound, sa- everything you said was very, very important and interesting, and I cannot respond to it until after you've watched more episodes. Okay. 
This is really neat. I like this. <laughs> this is a good podcast. <laughs> I mean, this is going to be all of us soon. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. But see, see, I'm specifically enjoying that. Like that he knows that I, I don't. <laughs> the three of us know the kingpin arc. Yeah. And so I'm enjoying watching him put these pieces together one, you know, one bit at a time without knowing what happens. Yeah. You know, the story he tells and why he came back to Hell's Kitchen, why he came back to the city. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. You know, it's one of those things where the villain's motivation is perhaps understandable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I you know. paid attention to that. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> You know, maybe it's a lie for all I know. I don't know, but but it seems like I don't know. I, I I like I like a villain where you can you can see why why they do the things they do. Maybe not the choices mm-hmm. they make, but but knowing what motivates them and understanding what motivates them. Um, this is I'm sorry. The thing I just thought of was I I watched an interview, and by an interview I mean it was a minute and a half promo that Disney XD put out interviewing Giancarlo Esposito because he played the Phantom Blot on the new episode of DuckTales. And Wait, he did? Yeah. Okay. And and he talks about how he he liked the motivation of the character. He said, you know, for a show like... He goes, when you're doing a comic story like this, you need to understand and maybe even be able to sympathize with why the villain is a villain. And uh, I'm just stuck listening to his voice in my memory right now, trying to place it as john carlos he didn't really sound like no he he, he took on like an affectation to his voice definitely interesting yeah ducktales podcast win (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna take a quick quick break and we'll be back with episode four we'll be right back after these messages Brought to you by Keto. I'm on a lifestyle, Robbie. This isn't a diet. Now, back to the show. We are back with episode four of Daredevil season one. In a flashback, Vladimir and Anatoly Rashnikov, the Russian mafia leaders seen in the first episode, are together in a Russian prison. Vladimir is using the ribs of a dead prison mate to create weapons, vowing the two will soon escape and move to America and become kings. You okay, Soundlord? Oh, I couldn't God, when he, I couldn't watch when, when that's he happening. Ripped the guy's rib out again. Because I, I, I see the knife, I go, oh, that's a bone. And then they talk about it. But then they had to roll the guy over, and then he had to pull out another one. Like he's God, ripping a rib out. You couldn't have done both of those while the guy was already turned over and your brother was not in the cell? Come on. No, no, he had to wait for the effect. Yeah. I absolutely... This is my useful knife, and this will be my dramatic knife. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely could not watch the screen while that was happening. Uh, It reminds me of... uh, There was a Horror Nights house a few years ago at Universal. Um, uh, The Body Collectors... Mm-hmm. I remember and, that one. Yeah, and there was one scene in it that Angela hated, and I was kind of there with her, um, where 
Yeah, the premise was these guys that pretty much look like the gentleman from Buffy the Vampire Slayer were coming on and collecting people's bodies, I guess. Um, but they had a guy on a table and they ripped his spine out and you just heard the sound of it like, and, and oh, God. Sub-Zero yeah. wins. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, was that also the house? Was that also the house where they had um, a padded wall that you walked by and a dude came out of the padded wall? I'm not talking about like a trick wall that you see in a haunted house, listeners. I'm talking about two walls that are actually made of foam that are touching each other. And a guy came through the seam in the foam to yes. jump out and scare you and then went back into it. Uh-huh. I think that okay. was, yeah, because it was set in an asylum or I something. don't get mm-hmm. scared often at those houses or, like, ever because I feel like most of the scares are telegraphed. But that sounds like it might not be telegraphed and might actually get me. No, that one you wouldn't – because mm-hmm. there's – they call them hidey holes, mm-hmm. which is kind of disgusting sounding. But a lot of the characters hide in those hidey holes – and you can kind of tell, like, oh, there's one around this corner. There's one around this corner. But when it's a wall, you have no fucking clue that anything's going to come out of that. I think that's why my favorite, one of my favorite houses they ever did was when they did American Werewolf in London. Yes. Because you walked by, you walked through, like, three rooms that looked like they were full of those holes, but nothing happened. So that is the only time I've ever screamed at Horror Nights was that house. And it was unrelated, but it's because I was laughing at someone else's reaction. And then while I was laughing, someone appeared in my face. But I did not know that you participated in Horror Nights ever. Only twice. Yeah. I've only gone twice. Oh, okay. At least you went that year when they had Werewolf in Cabin in the Woods. That was No, the best one that year was the one with the the blacklight butterflies. Didn't they do Werewolf like 16 times? No, seriously. They did Werewolf twice. No. They did, yeah. That year, there was a house that was like neon and blacklit, and it was trippy, and yeah, I liked that because a... it was the acid trip house. Yeah, that, that might have been, mm-hmm. I can't remember if that was the, was the year that it was 3D Wonderland. Glasses? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they, they did it with Alice in Wonderland. They did one that was like an execution. They did a Penn and Teller one. was also the Resident Evil Yeah, movie. the Penn and Teller Oh, I liked the Resident Evil. I liked when you walked through the pause screen. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was the best part of that house. <laughs> this is a horror nice podcast now, apparently. Sorry. This is an everything podcast, man. This is the best kind of bagel podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Where were we? After the opening credits, Murdoch is getting... Did you guys want to continue to talk about horror nights? <laughs> We didn't even make it through the credits. <laughs> the opening credits. Uh, Matt says he'll live, but shows some trepidation when Claire tells him the man they torched and threw off the roof in episode two is now in a coma. Claire is in hiding until Matt assures she's safe from the Russians. Nice Russian job, Matt. In a coma, I know, I know. <laughs> the two flirt some. Okay, Robbie. And Claire tells Matt he needs body armor, which Murdoch says will just slow himself down. He gives Claire the number to a burner phone she can contact him on. The Russian brothers meet with James Wesley in a taxi garage. The man killed by Healy in the last episode owned a taxi company, and Wesley explains that company has now been acquired and transferred to the taxi company owned by the Russians. Wesley again impresses upon the Russians that they are expected to handle the man in the mask, while the brothers let Wesley know the man in the mask is asking by name about Wilson Fisk. The brothers are warned the rest of the criminal group is becoming upset. I've read that for some reason as becoming super upset. 
<laughs> the well, rest of the criminal were. group is super upset. You're not wrong. <laughs> Madam Gow is super Russians. upset. <laughs> As the man in the mask attacks. Madam uh, Gow's going to blow a gasket. Distribution of Madam Gow's product. In a diner, Karen Page and Ben Urich discuss the UAC scandal. Karen insists on pursuing the story, but Urich insists she's lucky to be alive and to move on. Urich further asserts, due to past activities, Karen is not a credible source. While Page lists a series of major stories Urich has broken in the past, including taking down the Italian mob, Urich says he got old and less stupid since then. Also, um, just a second ago, when they were talking, when Wesley was talking with um, the Russians, he brings up Thor and he brings up Hulk. Is it Hulk the other one? Oh, Iron Man. He goes, Iron, Iron Man. Suit Iron Man. or Magic Hammer. Yeah. It, it was one of those weird half references right. like they used to do on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. Yeah. Where it feels awkward because there are ways to do throwaway references like that that don't feel mm-hmm. awkward. These felt awkward. Yep. It feels like like saying, hey, we're in the MCU. We can't actually say we're in the MCU, but this is us proving we're in the MCU. Yeah. I don't know that I felt like that one was that awkward. I mean, I think it might be awkward because we know better, but like in the context of if you were him in that universe, you, the point of that dialogue was he was saying, you didn't get beat up by Thor or Iron Man. This is, a, this is just a random dude. Do better. Like, I, I don't know. I didn't think it was that weird to be like, he didn't have a magic hammer. He wasn't in an iron suit. Like, he's a one guy in a mask. You know? I, I just don't know. feel like he would have... A more normal way to say it is like, it's not like you got in a fight with the Avengers, but, right. you know, they're either not allowed to or going out of their way not to say the A word. Right. <laughs> so Yeah, maybe. I just feel like Wesley, as like slimy as he is, would it would sound slimier if instead of saying the Avengers, he said it's not like they have a magic hammer, you know, like like smug, like really assholey like that. I don't know. Hmm. Vladimir and Anatoly head to the hospital room of the comatose thug who had been to Claire Temple's apartment and wake him with a shot of epinephrine. The the thug repeats the devil to describe Murdoch then dies as he gives them Claire's location. A pair of thugs break into Claire's apartment and do not find her and do encounter the teenage boy who had found Murdoch in the dumpster. In a car trip, Wesley and Wilson Fisk, once again, Wesley in a car talking to Wilson Fisk, discuss handling the Russians and the man in the mask. Uh, We also see interactions that portray genuine respect and friendship between Wesley and Fisk. It's funny because Robbie (laughs) said Eduardo discussed the MTVU, but MTVU is an actual (laughs) television, like... Uh, network that used to be uh, back in the day oh, was yeah. MTV University. Yep. I had that when I was in school. They were, they were ESPNU's biggest rival. If I remember. <laughs> um, look, so the Marvel movies, I think it's been like a common theme and it's weird because we've talked about how some of the Marvel villains are really good, but I think for a long time people thought Marvel villains were just not good characters. Um if you think about the first few, like the first Iron, first couple of Iron Man movies, the Thor movies, like it was always like a running thing that like well, Thor Marvel is the one that do. they said was the exception because everyone loved Loki. Sure, but Loki never felt like the the actual villain, right? Like I guess there was just an always always another threat. Maybe the first Thor. Uh, certainly, the se- al- certainly the second Thor had an awful villain. 
Well, sure. I mean, yeah. in the first one, the real villain is what's his name? Not the real villain, but like the real threat is the what is the the thing? The destroyer. Oh, the, the destroyer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, the Netflix series, the Marvel Netflix series, is different in the fact that, in my opinion, these are a lot of these are carried by the villains. I think of the first season of Daredevil, Luke Cage, and Jessica Jones, and I think, wow, I really like the main villains in those. At least half of the main villain of Luke Cage, but definitely the first season yeah. of um, Jessica Jones and um, and Daredevil. And so it's interesting that these are actually, in my opinion, being carried more by the villains than they are by the heroes. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think the heroes are likable. Yeah. But I, I agree with you. Like, if the, Of those three things you just mentioned, if I were to tell you a character that stood out the most to me in all of them, it would be Kingpin, Purple Man, and Cottonmouth. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I do like a lot of the characters in this show, but the Kingpin is the one that carries it. I haven't seen enough Kingpin yet to fully know, but oh, I'm also... sorry to spoil it for you. He's great. Oh man, I mean, <laughs> I did talk at length earlier about how, like, mainly this episode made me very interested to see what happens next. So already, right. it's like, okay, yeah, this is this is going to be interesting. So, so I I think if an episode where, save for the ending, he doesn't really do anything villainy. Uh, yeah i guess is the actual word um but yeah he's just kind of awkward and yeah he's just like a guy. yeah bulky <laughs> and that that dude has game for someone that's that awkward that like that should give all all awkward people hope yeah he, does, he has no idea what he's doing he's just doing his best <laughs> yeah um him saying that he needs a new suit. Is that setting up that he's going to get the white suit now? So, I don't think this is a spoiler, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. Um, because I remember it was something the producers talked about, the writers talked about before the show came out. Um, but he's, as the season goes on, you're going to see him, his suit goes from black to gray to having some white oh interesting because the idea is this is the kingpin's origin story so he's not actually the kingpin yet just like it's Uh, daredevil's origin story yes correct. that's why we're not going to see him in the daredevil suit for a a while we got um, an allusion to body armor yes at least so we know that it's coming well and did you catch who he said needs to make the new armor they said the name and I said, I yeah. bet that name means something. Was it like Peter? It or... does. It does. Um, so, um, the man that makes Daredevil's gear and suits in the comics is Melvin Potter. Potter. Potter was yes. the name. Okay, I was close. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell Potter I need a new suit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that that's, yeah. Um. Yeah, and, and I think it is a little bit of reference to, you know, putting him in the white suit, but he was not in the black suit because they don't care about the iconography. Like, they knew what they were doing. Like Yeah. So. Oh, I, f- I figured that it was going to happen at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeah, said, I'm a TV show, you can build up to going it. to leave alone the point it happens because it's done in a very interesting way, and... I'm pretty sure I can say that, and you won't actually guess. Okay. So. 
He falls into a vat of chemicals and it bleaches his suit. Good lord, how did you guess that? No. <laughs> okay. Actually, Paul, I, was like, I was like, that was clearly a Joker reference, but... Uh... He gets dared to jump into a vat of devils, and that's how it happens. <laughs> Roll credit. Uh, Alright, so Harry Potter makes the suit. Got it. Um, Fisk meets in the art gallery with the curator who introduces herself as Vanessa from the previous episode again, and Fisk asks her out on a date, which she agrees to at a future time. At an auction of liquidated UAC items, Karen is tracking who is bidding when Ben Urich arrives and tells her she's not as sneaky as she thinks and is liable to get caught. A discussion between Nelson and Murdoch is interrupted when Claire calls Matt, only for Matt to hear her struggle while being abducted on the other end. Focusing his incredible hearing, Murdoch is able to locate the descent, the distant Russian voices, but loses them. I just want to say that when you said focusing on focusing his incredible hearing, I felt like that was the self narration that a comic book character would have done in like the sixties. <laughs> I'll focus my incredible hearing. The way like the old daredevil comics are, it's like, I'm going to focus my hearing. This hearing was developed when I lost my eyesight via radiation accident. <laughs> Just in case you missed everything. It else works like sonar. I'm able to practically see, even though I don't have eyesight. Mm-hmm. Oh, speaking of looks like sonar. Daredevil should be Batman. Like, like, this is what Batman should be. Batman should be the guy with no sight who gets around by hearing. Like, Daredevil should be Batman. And then Batman should be Daredevil? I don't know what Batman should be. Yeah, a creature of the night. Yeah, because and... he got dared to jump into a vat of devils. <laughs> I mean, he's got little horns, so yeah, maybe. Uh... <laughs> I'm a bat. No, you're not. Claire is taken to the Russian taxi garage while Matt meets with the teenage neighbor, Santino. Santino was roughed up by the Russians and gave away Claire's location, but is able to tell Matt the taxi company the Russians were using. Fisk and Vanessa have dinner and discuss Hell's Kitchen. Yes? I'm sorry. This sounds like, oh, God, he needs to talk again. (laughs) Um, Just a a thing I caught in this scene, because Matt is speaking Spanish to Santino. um, And... I thought it was. I'm probably just like making connections that aren't really there, but he says because uh, Santino is saying, "Oh, it's my fault," and Matt says, "No es tu culpa, it's me," and that made me think of confession again because they speak Latin, "mea culpa." Uh, it means it's my through my fault, and he's taking the blame. He's saying, and and even Spanish and Latin obviously have have. Well, Spanish's roots are in Latin. So just the fact that the word culpa just really like stood out to me there because I'm already thinking of Matt Murdock in terms of, I mean, the first time we see him is in confession. And, and and the prayer that I have is like, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. And I, that's just what I thought of when, he's, when he says it to Santino. And I don't know if that's just a, I mean, he had to speak Spanish because the character speaks Spanish. That's, that's how it goes. But it would seem, just one of those, it seemed like it might have been one of those happy accidents or maybe planned. Listen, I don't know. I was not kidding that in the first was... episode when I said Catholicism is the main character in this show. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I've decided that the the brutal violence uh, in the show this that's just Mel Gibson Catholicism. <laughs> Uh, Vanessa talks of wanting the neighborhood to keep its charm and character. Fist tells her she only thinks that because she didn't grow up there and that the CD needs to change quickly. Fist tells Vanessa her... To- does, Vanessa doesn't like... Uh, uh, the word just escaped me. Why did the word escape Gentrification. me? Gentrification. Yes, thank you. It was on my head when I started the sentence, and now I've ruined the podcast. First time, yes. first time I ever heard that word was on a, on a bus tour in New York as we went through Harlem. And the guy's talking about gentrification. Yeah. <laughs> Vanessa hates gentrification, and Wilson yeah. Fisk is here for it. There's a lot of gentrification that happens in some of these Marvel shows because it's like a big theme here. It's also a big mm-hmm. theme in um, Luke Cage. Luke Cage is all about like gentrification and like losing of the the culture of the city. Yeah, because if you've ever been to Hell's Kitchen, it's not like it is. It's not the name is scary, but the place is not <laughs> really right. I had a really good burrito in Hell's Kitchen once. Yeah, yeah I think I remember people saying about the show. I mean, I would expect you to show. have good food there. I feel like I remember people saying about the show <laughs> it that it's written, it's written like it takes place in Hell's Kitchen from 30 years ago or 40 years yes, ago when it yeah, does not. Yeah. Sorry, Eduardo, we'll interrupt you again in a second. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fist tells her he moved away when he was young and grew up hating Hell's Kitchen but came back to make it a better place. Vanessa is enamored with his speech. The Russians torture Claire and ask her how to find the man in the mask. As they do, the lights turn out. Men in the distance start yelling, and Claire begins laughing, saying, you want to know his name? Ask him yourself. How awkward would that have been if it was just like a random power outage and she started laughing? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't actually there. Oh, my great line. It's ruined. <laughs> now, Robbie, you like this fight, huh? This fight's pretty sick. I I love this fight, and so... I know the hallway fight is where all the hype is, and I get it because, like, from a from a production standpoint, the, they pulled off that hallway fight in that one long shot. Like, that's that's incredible. And then we talked about all the reasons that fight was incredible, and it it was incredible. It deserves its praise. But this is the fight that I love. This is the 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 moment where she starts laughing is just so it builds so much hype. It's so cool that, that she realized it, it's, it's the dramatic version of the ha ha ha. You guys are so screwed moment. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like, Oh shit. He found you guys. I'm not worried mm-hmm. anymore. Um, and it's great. And it, it's cool. It's really cool that when we're coming into the show, Matt is already dangerous and powerful. Um, yeah. he's going to run into things, spoiler, sorry, sound Lord. He's going to run into things that are tough for him. And it just makes those things actually seem legitimately tough because the, uh, beta version of daredevil we're seeing is already able to wreck people. And you know, it, and you, you know, you know that when those lights go out that, Oh, you know, he's going to come save the day. He's going to beat these guys senseless. You, you don't really, mm-hmm. you're not supposed to be worried about this. You're supposed to know that, you know, oh yeah, get him, Matt. Like, and and it's just a great moment. And I love Claire's laugh, and I love it. Feels like Batman, but that's fine. We've already discussed it. Should be Batman. I love the the yeah. you know the, the people getting beat up in the darkness and um everything. But then, and it makes even more sense for him. Mm-hmm. I, I you know turn off the yeah. lights. He can't see yeah, anyway, absolutely. so he's not at a disadvantage. 
I love it. I think it's And great. then with all of that, there's a really good sense of reality that you don't usually get in a fight scene like this in, in a, a damsel in distress, distress rescue scene where Claire does break down and is very emotional and traumatized from being abducted and threatened and nearly killed. Mm-hmm. And I feel like normally you see all a lot more happiness in this situation, a lot more, you saved me, and, and you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But there's legitimately some trauma here. And, you know, you have her breaking down and Matt apologizing. And I think that's great. It adds a dose of something you can get away with in kind of a serialized environment because you can let there still be kind of loose ends of, yes, he saved her life, but that doesn't mean that everything is okay. In a movie, you would have to pretend that everything is okay because you got to get to the credits or at least, the you know, mm-hmm. the third act. Um, here, you can let that loose end linger like it would in reality of this is cool claire's life is is she's saved for now but this is dangerous like bad things are happening and i thought that was great but i just i i just think it's such a cool moment um and and i it just hits me uh something i i I think i've mentioned on squad up is that i really like when video games have a moment not the whole game but a moment where you get to feel your character being overpowered it is sometimes just really fun to watch, you know, uh, your viewpoint, your character, the good guy, that sort of thing. It's really good to have a moment where the bad guys are afraid of them. Those, those stupid wolves on the first bridge in Bloodborne are afraid of you because you're going to beat them down this time. I like those moments, and I liked that moment here. I liked the moment of, yeah, y'all are, you know, way below this man's league, and she knows it. That's all. Yeah, this fight's super cool. I think um, it's got a very, we've said this before, but it's got a very Batman feel to it. Uh, especially when he's like talking to him at the mm-hmm. end. And he's like, let her go. Mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, he's even got the Batman <laughs> voice. Yeah, he's, it's just Batman. Right? Where are the other drugs going? <laughs> <laughs> Man, his voice changed so much over those three movies. Yeah. Christian Bale. He sounded like this in the first one. And then suddenly by Dark Knight, he's like, (laughs) (laughs) And then he dialed it back a bit. I'm not wearing hockey pads. (laughs) I came to show you there's so good in this city. (laughs) This city just showed you. It's full of people. Who believe in God? Oh, that, that was, was good. Kind of eerie. <laughs> <laughs> you have to sound like you are super exhausted when yeah, you do he, it. Every time he talks, he sounds like he's been running like like a marathon. You can only get out probably four or five. <laughs> maybe six words at a time. <laughs> Until you're angry. <laughs> This is the most... You can't spell Daredevil without derail. (laughs) Oh, shit. Is it true? Yes. Yes, it is. Oh, my gosh. They're eating her. And then they're going to eat me. (laughs) They're going to eat me? (laughs) 
if you listen yeah. to the Squat Up podcast and you get that reference, please let us know in an email. <laughs> or Assembly Required, whatever podcast we're on right now. Do oh, we yeah, get so right. derailed that this is now an episode of Squat Up? <laughs> <laughs> What would you guys say your third favorite episode of Goosebumps is? <laughs> All right, here we go. Official official 20th century Goosebumps power rankings. All right, at 37, what I've got. <laughs> We're going to have a Goosebumps draft. Monster Blood 2, baby. <laughs> no, see, the bottom is the Haunted Mask 2, because then you're just going to the well too many times. Hmm. This is a different mask. It's haunted It's an in a old guy way. instead of a monster. Mm-hmm. When I was... Robbie, in my... And this is, has nothing to do <laughs> whoa, with whoa, anything. Really? We're going to go completely on <laughs> Nothing process. has anything to do with anything anymore. <laughs> it's literally nothing to do with anything. When I was in my 6th and 7th grade, I went to Stonewall Jackson mm-hmm. Middle School, which... If you do not know who mm-hmm. Stonewall Jackson is, he was a Confederate mm-hmm. general. A bad one. Uh, I think recently people have decided maybe that's not the greatest name for a school, and it was just <laughs> renamed Roberto Clemente Middle oh, School. cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I'm upset that I went to it when it was Stonewall Jackson. <laughs> just tell people you went to it when it was Clemente. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I guess we should get back to the doing the episode we said we were going to do. The yeah. Goosebumps episode. The Goosebumps yeah. episode. This I think episode three just really threw us for a loop <laughs> with this one. I think we're gonna be back stronger for the next one, but this one I apologize right now for. <laughs> no. Don't be be unapologetically you. You people wanna listen to us talk about goosebumps and we know it. <laughs> I am being unapologetically the me. People... I'm apologizing for the three of you. The people oh. don't <laughs> The people don't know what they want. They don't. What? Do you not have a phone? Come on. <laughs> what are you, Blizzard? Do you guys not have phones? Yeah. People can't be trusted to know what they want. <laughs> you have to give people what they don't know they want instead uh, of what they think they want. Thanks, Walt. What they think they want is Daredevil. What they really want is R.L. Stein, the man without Fear Street. Maybe the goosebumps were the friends we made along the way. Back at the Healy trial, Murdoch detects the anxious heartbeat of yet another juror. And back at the Healy the trial? Wait, no, we're not that <laughs> far back. My Healy God. Trial. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I must have scrolled up too much. <laughs> oh, we see Matt Murdoch young on the street. Pushed a blind man out of the way. <laughs> Sorry, I uh, I scrolled up too much. You only uh, scrolled back so far it was Ben Affleck. Using the senses and the dark <laughs> to his advantage, Murdoch avoids the guns of the thugs and picks them off one by one. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now I'm apologizing for myself. <laughs> it was only a matter of time. <laughs> Uh, the last thug holds Claire at gunpoint, but Matt is able to disarm him as he teaches him a lesson in being in pain and afraid. Claire knocks him out with a bat. She then falls sobbing into Murdoch's arms. 
Karen and Yurik meet at the diner, and Yurik reveals he was asking Karen to drop the story for her own safety, but intended to follow it himself. Yurik warns Paige about the terrible fates his past informants met, including the one who has married him. He tells Karen she needs to keep quiet and only talk to him, but that allows her to sign uh, the agreement and get the UAC money. Vladimir and Anatoly find the aftermath of Claire's rescue. Anatoly says they need to beg Fisk for help. Vladimir is too proud, so Anatoly says he will beg for the both of them. As Fisk and Vanessa hit it off following dinner, Anatoly barges into the restaurant and begins to ask Fisk for help. Fisk angrily leaves with Vanessa and tells Wesley to put Anatoly in a car. In a turn of roles, Matt patches up Claire in his apartment. Matt expresses fear he's not making a difference, and Claire insists he is. Murdoch tells her his real name. Fisk walks Vanessa home, and Vanessa shoots him down. Uh, yeah. Wesley drives Anatoly out to a quiet location where <laughs> Anatoly says he wanted to apologize to Fisk in person and put the past behind them. Then Wesley gives a super weird monologue that just yeah. is really, it's like Maybe a really... the past isn't etched in stone. <laughs> right, it's like a really long and drawn out way to say, we don't forget. Anatoly, you. like, just like, <laughs> it's just going in one ear goes with it. Right? He has just no like, idea. Okay. He's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Poor guy doesn't even speak like, English, and you're well, like speaking to him in riddles. And, think, <laughs> and and Soundlord, you've watched this more recently than us, so correct me if I'm wrong. But I think at this moment, you know what's not exactly how it's going to happen, but you do know what's about to happen because you just saw his face when Vanessa shot him down, and you're listening to this spiel and watching mm. Anatoly just be, yeah, cool. Like you know what's about to happen. Yeah. You're maybe not braced for yeah. how, but you know what. Okay, you know goodbye from the yeah. show, Anatoly. You know the end result. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I hope you enjoyed your one episode. <laughs> Poor guy. Glad I didn't bother learning your name. <laughs> Wesley tells Anatoly Fisk would like to have a word with him, and Fisk suddenly opens a door, pulls the Russian out, and begins beating him. Though the Russian can fight, Fisk's tremendous size is clearly incredible strength, uh, and he easily overpowers Anatoly. Further, when Anatoly attempts to stab Fisk with a knife, he discovers Fisk's suit is actually body armor. Fisk yells at Anatoly, you embarrass me in front of her, then throws him against the SUV and viciously, repeatedly slams the car door against the head of his Russian business partner until he's decapitated. What an undersell. <laughs> what an undersell of what happens on the screen. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. First of all, him saying you embarrass me in front of her, that mm -hmm. chilled me. Like, that was... I was like, I don't even know what your motivation is at this point anymore, sir. Um, no, I, let me tell you something. When I watched this scene and he said, you embarrass me, I thought of the movie The Fast and the Furious at the very beginning when Paul Walker and uh, I don't know if you guys have seen Fast and Furious or when the last time you saw it was, but I've seen that movie several times. Hmm. And at the very beginning, Paul Walker gets into a fight with one of Vin Diesel's like boys and he like yells at him and yells you embarrass me so when i saw this i saw this bald-headed guy saying you embarrass me and i'm like was vin diesel <laughs> i haven't seen it i'm sorry i'm upset if you get that reference furious podcast damn i've never seen any of them but i've been on the ride <laughs> um, uh, i still would like to see the movies at some point though even though i've been on the ride uh so, <laughs> oh god the only person who looked like they were enjoying themselves at the ride was The Rock, and that includes everyone who was visiting or worked there. <laughs> um, 
anyway, um, I think it's because the rock doesn't know how not to be charming, but, uh, Oh, but back to Kingpin, knocking a dude's head off with a car door, uh, which I didn't even know was a thing you could do. I, I, I think the worst part for me is not the torso hitting the ground without its head. Knowing that there's a head now sitting in the back seat of that car or say. on the floor at the back seat of the car. Yeah, it's the the sudden after he's like slammed the door multiple times, all of a sudden, and I think this is when the head probably bursts off or something, there's like this extra gush of blood that just I'm pretty sure it's, it's actually brain matter. Is it brain? Yeah, I think oh, it's supposed to be a sense. lump of brain matter. That's freaking mm-hmm. horrible, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you really feel. That's my. That's your segue. That's my new catchphrase. That's freaking horrible, man. Oh man, I like I messed up. Oh yeah, that's when I messed up really bad. I messed up. That's freaking horrible, man. Oh boy. Ugh. Wiping away the blood, Fisk tells Wesley to let Mr. Potter know he'll need to make a new suit. Oh, and then Wesley just sit in the backseat of the car and then gets blood on him. He's like, I guess I should go outside now. And he just calmly walks away like, this is not the first time this has happened. No, he's checking Twitter on his phone, just sitting in the back of that. (laughs) Here we go again. Mm. Open up Twitter to find something to do while this man takes 10 minutes to beat this guy up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and to deliver the body of Anatoly to his brother. When Wesley says that will start a war, Fisk says, I'm counting on it. We've already talked about the brutality in this show, and Chris, you've already given us your raw impressions, but both you and Peaches uh, were a little surprised, I would say, at how brutal the show really is. I'd say that... There are certain things that stand out because this is a rewatch for me. There are certain things that stand out that like you just can't escape the the like you see them and you'll never forget them. And this car scene is one of them. Mm-hmm. But I'll say like I remember this show being violent for those things that I remember. But then every so often things happen that I didn't remember and I just realized it's way more violent than like I when Healy shoves the mobster's like, arm in the ball return then Compound fractures. No, the oh, oh, or like it's so many things per episode. It's not just like one thing every couple of episodes. It's like there's something. Even just watching Matt Murdock stitch up somebody else, or like when he stitched up his dad's, um, oh, like eye, yeah. like above his eye. Like mm. you watched him actually and the stitch way his dad his, quivers. His but like <laughs> the end of episode three. I totally forgot until about 80% of the way through the fight that the bowling alley guy that I don't remember the name of impaled his, himself through that yeah. rod. I was and surprised so, like, you'd forgotten that one. Because <laughs> that one sticks with me. Well, I remember it on time. Because I was watching it with somebody who's kind of squeamish, and I remembered it on time to be like, hey, you're going to want to cover your eyes in a second. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's like... I'm curious to see how many more disgustingly brutal moments there are in the show that I just forgot about because of the ones that I, that stuck out so much more. Like there's one that I won't spoil from season two, one moment from that season that I, I think about all the time. And then this season it's typically the hallway fight and the car door. And 
Soundlord, I know how you're feeling about the violence on the show. You do know who's a main character in the next season, right? Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't get better than that. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, I'm not against the violence per se. I mean, leaving all aside the, you know, the <clears throat> societal implications of portraying brutal violence in the media leaving all that aside i don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with a show or movie being violent um but i cringed a lot watching this i cringed a lot in the last five minutes talking about it um the show is so unapologetically brutal in its violence and that it's i don't know if it's just excited that it gets to be more violent and nasty than the MCU movies. I don't know if that if it's like a kid who learns a swear word and is ex- you know is like I'm not supposed to be doing this and gets really excited about swearing all the time. I I me still. <laughs> I mean, you know what, you know where they're still excited about being able to do something that's you know, forbidden or, or, or bad, and they're like, well, we can do it, so. I mean, you see it sometimes with shows. Okay, so, like, the Star Trek streaming shows, which I haven't actually watched, but I know that they include words that you could not say on network television, words that they don't say in PG-13 Star Trek movies because it's streaming and they can get away with it, and sometimes it can come across as, oh, we're just doing it because we can, not because we need to. Now, now, granted, this show's M.O. is that it is the brutal street-level violence show, and so it, it, it makes sense, but it's still sometimes a little, I don't necessarily want to say shocking, um, but it, it, it can be jarring, definitely. Like the door was a jarring. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, it was a jar. Then it wasn't. Then it was. Then it wasn't. Then it wasn't. Then it wasn't. <laughs> I'm just trying to get this alert to turn off, and this guy's head is in the way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Stop beeping. It makes me feel better saying you that because I I don't. It's weird that I like this show because I really do not do violence well. I I can't handle blood. I can't handle bone injuries. I can't. There was, there was a game I was watching, uh, an NFL game I was watching on Sunday, and it's like, I can't even remember what the injury was, but they're like, we're only going to show you this once. It's like, don't even do that! Like, <laughs> no, just tell us what happened. I, don't, I, I have no you. need. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't need you to replay a sports no. injury. You can yeah. just tell me it happened, and I'll believe you. Like, you I, don't, remember, <laughs> I don't need to see someone's knee go I remember backwards. when I watched Come Blindside, on. and I was watching it with my wife, and... I realized it was going to start the movie with the Joe Theismann injury. And I just remember the movie starts. I'm like, no. And, I, and she goes, what? I go, stop watching. <laughs> and she didn't stop watching in time, but they started the movie with that. So oh my God. Uh, for, I'll wait until after the air and I'll ruin peaches and, and Eduardo with the Joe Theismann injury. But, um, so yeah, no, I don't do bone injury. Well, I don't do violence. Well, I don't bl- do blood. Well, and yet I like the show anyway, but it's it's not because of the violence. The violence doesn't ruin the show, but I have to stop watching a lot of times when it's on there. 
So you weren't a fan of R.L. Stein's Monster Blood 3. <laughs> <sighs> wow, this joke does not die. You know, it's interesting because this it's not a Marvel Netflix identity thing. Yes, the Marvel Netflix shows are a little darker and a little more violent than the MCU, but Daredevil exclusively is this mm-hmm. violent. It is yeah. this grotesque. So the Jessica Jones one, no. isn't like this. Jessica Jones is not like this. No. Um, Cage and I would like say neither this. was the Defenders. The Defenders had a couple moments, but... Jessica I... Jones has some violent moments. Yeah. And some... I think Jessica Jones is like the middleman between... Mm-hmm how violent Daredevil is and how violent Luke Cage and Iron Fist yeah. are collectively. Sure. And Jessica Jones, I also think, has a lot more stuff that's uncomfortable to watch, but it is not yes. violence. Yeah, yeah, Purple Man does some stuff yeah. that makes me uncomfortable, kind of the way that violence does, but it's not like a cracking bone. It's... Sure. Yeah. That there's there's one moment from Jessica Jones season one that stands out to me too, and I cannot stop thinking about it now. So thank you. <laughs> you two might be able to think of it. Chris will not think of it. Can you give me a hint? Okay. I'll type you a hint. Eduardo, I'm going to read this hint while you continue on. Yep, that's the one I was thinking. Yep, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you get a moment of relief. And then, then later, she comes into the aftermath, and your relief is gone because it all happened anyway. Yep. Well, if that word's the hint, I'm very concerned. Oh, God, yes. Eduardo, continue on with the show. You should be. Oh, gosh, it's not like Gremlins, is it? I don't know what that means. Oh, have you not seen Gremlins? Gremlins at least are puppets and not actual people. Oh, no. Get us out of here. Get us out of here. <laughs> big takeaways for the episode. My big takeaway was that episode three sucked. <laughs> episode three was so not good that my wife finished the episode and decided, I'm not going to watch this with you anymore because I didn't like that. And she has not watched it with me since. Which is a shame because episode four was a lot better. But that's how much episode three wasn't good. I hope she jumps back on the bandwagon for 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 you i don't know i will piggyback off of that because my big takeaway is that this is where this series really gets going when i first was watching this through the first three episodes and again i don't hate the third episode like the way you do but i definitely like i was watching this show based on word of mouth i got through the first three episodes and was just kind of powering through it for the sake of seeing something that everyone told me was good and then when episode four happened, that's when I was hooked, and that's when I binged the next, because I, I started watching when right when season two dropped. And so I binged season, uh, the rest of season one and season two, and it was, it's, it gets to be a wild ride from here on out. And that same feeling I had the first time I watched, I had all over again for this rewatch, where I watched seasons, or I watched episodes one, two, and three just for getting this podcast prepped. And then I watched season four and just now I have a dying need to watch the rest of the season because season four gets you real or at least gets me real hype for where the show goes from there. Um, but Chris, going forward, what are you excited about? Oh, um, I'm, I'm actually really excited about the journalism. Hell yeah. Because I didn't know that. 
I didn't know that was going to be a thing. And it's, uh, I, I had forgotten. I remembered that Ben, Ben Yurick was in the show. Um, but I had forgotten that that was going to be a thing. Cause remember that season four is as far as I ever got actually, or episode four, excuse me, is as far Drink as I every ever got time they show. accidentally say season. Yeah. <laughs> he got me started on that. <laughs> I'm just upset that you, uh, asked me what I was most excited for instead of what my biggest takeaway was because, or what the biggest takeaway was because I had a joke all lined up. Okay. And, okay. Hold on. Hold on. Soundlord. What's your biggest takeaway? Rewind the play five minutes. I think the biggest takeaway was Anatoly's head. Anyway. Oof. Oh, <laughs> yikes i am looking forward to more kingpin i mean i I obviously i know what happens but i you know even watching this again kingpin just the way that he is he is portrayed is just the kind of person that you don't want to you don't want them talking to you like i don't want anything to do with that man please never speak to me i'm scared of you just because you're here in the same room as i am Mm -hmm. and so it's like obviously you're scared of him after anatoly loses his head because you can see what his rage turns into. But even before then, you're like, this guy makes me uncomfortable, and I would like to understand why, please. <laughs> it's because of how he's so great. Yeah. Kingpin is great because he's unique, right? Like, he is so different from anything else. I would just say on TV in general, right? Like, I think he is this wholly unique character, and he's just beginning to get explored with this watch. Um, so it's it'll be interesting to see where else they take him even though three out of the four of us know where they take him. You know what I think is interesting about it is that a, a lot of a lot of shows, movies, whatever it may be, when they are doing the whole thing that Daredevil does where they like don't reveal the villain for some set amount of time, when you finally see them, the first thing you see them doing is usually something really messed up or vile or or like just villainous in general. But when we see Kingpin for the first time finally, he's looking at art. Mm-hmm. And then when we see him for the second time, he's asking a woman on a date. And so it's like, it's jarring because there's all these people in this universe in the first three episodes that are afraid to say this man's name. And when we meet him, he's going on a date. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he's looking at art and feeling sad. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's definitely a strange juxtaposition and it's different from what we would expect because we know he's a villain, but we're not really sure yep. why. And then yet. it kind of lulls you into that false sense of security. And then, bam, car door. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think you're also thinking, like, again, like we said, you are expecting, okay, Anatoly's going to die. This is the villain. But you're kind of thinking, like, quiet gunshot in a back alley or somewhere. And that is not what he does. It's. <laughs> oh, no, it's not quiet. Oh, God. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode of Assembly Required and MCU Retrospective. We've gone through episodes three and four, but be on the lookout for episodes five and six, and then the rest of the, the rest of the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then pretty soon, we're going to have some WandaVision to talk about, and that's when yeah. we really get back to what we uh what we know you know it's it's a it'll be back in our safe space not that this is too far out but uh i'm excited to get back to some more mcu goodness hopefully we'll also get black widow at some point yeah it's gonna be exciting november gonna be all new to us uh the rumor is that they're delaying it again they haven't announced a delay yet but okay 
Yeah, because I know Wonder Woman got pushed back to Christmas now. Yeah. Because Tenet has not done super well in the box office because no one wants to go to the movies. Surprise. So. Who knew that would happen? Yeah, I know. If only we could have done something about this months ago. Oh, well. (laughs) Nevertheless. But that's going to do it for all of us. You can follow the show at AssemblyCast on Twitter. Email the show at AssemblyRequiredCast. Is it AssemblyRequiredCast at gmail.com? I had it so good last time. Uh, you can follow all of us. Uh, <laughs> D underscore Peaches, GatorSacks2010, PhilKid3, ABCD, Eduardo1. That's going to do it for myself, for Robbie, for Chris, for Peaches. We love you, 3000. Bye, everybody. Excelsior. Hail Hydra. Boobly, boobly. Beware, you're in for a scare.